and welcome to the sixth episode of Season 4 of the Fixing Healthcare Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Jeremy Kaur. I'm also the host of the Popular New Books in Medicine Podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert was the CEO of the Permanente Group, the nation's largest physician group. He is currently a Forbes contributor, professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business, and author of the best-selling book, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this, our final episode of the current season. This season, we focused on big ideas and the people behind them. We had presidential candidates, heads of the FDA and VA, CEOs of major companies like Apple and 23andMe, a Pulitzer Prize-winning author. Each of our guests have made major contributions in a broad range of fields, and all were invited due to their unique expertise specific to the coronavirus. For those of you wanting more details about COVID-19, you can listen to our bi-weekly show titled Coronavirus, The Truth, Honor we provide the most up-to-date information on this pandemic. You can also check out my website, robertpearlmd.com, and there you'll find links to articles on the virus itself, along with information on its economic and social consequences. Once there, I encourage as many of you as possible to participate in the reader's survey about the impact of this pandemic on you and your loved ones. Once again, that's robertpearlmd.com. Our guest today is Stephen Shortell. He served as the Dean at the Berkeley School of Public Health from 2002 to 2013. He is currently a professor at both the UC Berkeley Graduate School of Public Health and the Haas School of Business. Here he co-leads the Center for Healthcare Organizational and Innovative Research. He has published over 350 peer-reviewed articles and 10 books. He brings a broad expertise on healthcare policy, clinical quality outcomes, and the public health aspects of the current coronavirus pandemic. Steve, let's begin by having you tell the listeners some of your history at both the Berkeley School of Public Health and the Haas School of Business. Sure, Robbie, happy to do so. Been at Berkeley about 22 years now, both in the Haas School of Business and here in our School of Public Health, and uh, came here in 1998. I became dean of our school here. I served the school for about 11 years as dean. Uh, and uh, then returned full-time to the faculty, head up two research centers here, one on healthcare innovation, uh, organizational innovation research, and the other one on really the application of uh, the shingle principles to managing and improving healthcare, the lean management system, if you will. So my first love has always been research, trying to contribute. Uh, I like teaching a lot as well. Don't do too much of that anymore. Mostly focused now on the research side, now, this episode is the last of season four, and the perfect transition to next season that will focus on the culture of medicine and the consequences for patients. You have tremendous experience. What are your thoughts? What is right about American healthcare, and what is wrong? We have a very high variance system here in the United States, reflecting our history and culture. Uh, we have certainly pockets of excellence. There's no question about that. But in my own view, uh, things uh, are moving too slow and uh, the incentives are not strong enough for change. Uh, 
The big question is going to be whether the COVID-19 is going to be the burning platform we need to move the system forward, not back to what it was before, but really moving it forward. And that's going to take uh, a lot of change on multiple fronts, Robbie. Uh, on the one hand, we need to totally change the way we pay for healthcare uh, in this country. Uh, it's just crazy, as you well know, you practice in a system that for six or seven decades had the incentives right. Uh, and so what we need really is, uh, if you will, all payer risk-adjusted capitated global budgets that create incentives for providers and, uh, and insurers and so forth in their networks to keep people well. And uh, that is currently lacking in our system for the most part. And that's one of the major changes I think uh, that are gonna be needed in order to move us forward. I think uh, another point I would make uh, is what that also does is creates the incentives to redesign care. I was part of 20 or so years ago of a quality crossing the quality chasm report of the then institute of medicine now national academy of medicine i headed up a subgroup of that it was a great experience expertly led at the time by don berwick and uh, uh, we pointed out you know six things that are still valid today about we need care that indeed is uh, effective efficient uh, personalized you know patient-centered uh, most of all, equitable uh, as well, and uh, really, you know, strives to do the right thing uh, at the right time. And uh, we're still far from that in too many parts of the country. So a simple way of thinking about it, but you can unpack it in its complexity, and we need to do that to some extent, incentives times capabilities, or incentives plus capabilities. Yes, we need to change the payment incentives in this country, pay for wellness, pay for health, but at the same time, we have to take into account the capabilities of providers to succeed under the new incentives. I personally uh, come down on the side of we need to move faster. Uh, others will say, well, gee, what about the independent practitioners? You don't wanna blow up the system, blah, blah, blah. I understand that. And so we also need to have funding for technical assistance and you know to increase the capabilities of the independent practices and others in order to really meet patient-centered care and to succeed under a global budget kind of system. Steve, you've been a big proponent of evidence-based approaches to medical care from a cultural perspective. Why do you believe it's so hard for doctors to follow the best evidence-based approaches or phrased differently why do physicians provide so much care that has been shown to add little or no value? And what can we do about it? Great question. I was just uh, on a um, webinar earlier today in which one of the presentations was on low value care. And they've got a paper under review. I think I can share the findings though. One third, one third of Medicare beneficiaries uh, receive one or more low value service. Uh, that's some data will come out in some article probably in the future. Uh, we know about choosing wisely, for example. We know about the figures on, on waste, uh, probably 25, 30% of it uh, being waste. Why is this? Uh, I think there's a couple of reasons. One, as you well know, um, physician training, the clinical training, residency, you get into certain patterns of practice, you go into practice, 
and you're very much, you know, subject to a lot of, therefore, how you've been trained most recently, and it becomes difficult to keep up on the literature these days and the new advances because they're happening so rapidly. And that's the fact that, therefore, uh, you know, it's very difficult to practice medicine today unless you are part of an organization that has ways of scanning these new innovations coming along, processing them, distributing them, creating incentives, and the peer pressure to adopt them more rapidly than we've seen in the past. So a lot of this now is team care. It's a team sport. It's not just the individual physician, as you well know. And it's a matter then of learning how to use these well-trained health professionals, nurses, and others, community health workers now, uh, to benefit the patient. When often the patient relates better is from the culture uh, and the language of some of the other members of the team than they may be from the primary care physician. So I think this is beginning to change and needs to change more quickly. And what will help with that uh, is this movement towards pain for health and pain for well-being and not by the piece, uh, not by individual procedures, the old fee-for-service. As the former dean of the Berkeley School of Public Health, you're a world's expert on the social determinants of health and the massive impact they have on clinical outcomes. What do you see our nation able to do to address them? And how likely do you believe we will do so? I think, uh, Rob, in the last year or so, we've understood better how much of health is really produced by the social determinants and the problems when you have food insecurity and housing and the homeless and lack of education, going back to poverty and structural racism and the underlying root causes of all of this. We know and we've known for 30, 40 years now that 60, 70% of health is produced by social determinants, where we live, uh, and how we live day by day and not by the medical care or healthcare system, which is basically a fix me up system, which is important. I don't denigrate it at all. And we need to do a lot of work there as we've already talked about to do a better job of that. But it really is in the linkages to the social determinants. So what I see and what we're beginning to see across the country in pockets are closer ties, closer networking between the healthcare system and these other systems, uh, the housing sector, the transportation sector, the community development sector, certainly the educational sector, uh, Kaiser Permanente investing $250 million in housing and others beginning to follow course because they're understanding now that if we're gonna have some kind of global budget, I have so much money, I better figure out the root causes of why these people are coming to me because I make more money now if I don't put them in that hospital bed or if they don't even need to make a face-to-face -face visit, we can do it through telehealth or better yet, if they can manage their diabetes themselves at home, maybe with some decision support tools that I can give them through email or whatever, that's money in my pocket because the goal is to keep people well now, right? 
Uh, and so with that kind of incentive, that gives you motivation to reach out to these other sectors to develop these partnerships. So a couple specific examples that have promise. One is the Accountable Communities for Health. We have about a dozen of them here in California. There's others around the country as well. There's a number of other initiatives around healthy homes and hospital at home that are also being looked at. And so I think as we learn more about these, uh, I think they're gonna begin to spread. I'm currently working with some people at, at Brookings and colleagues here at Berkeley on developing a concept that I call whole person uh, development networks, whole person development networks. And all it means is it adds to currently the uh, emphasis being given to housing and food insecurity and the need for mental health resources integrated with primary care to really link it to early maternity care, childbirth, the first five years of life, healthy adolescent development, job training, vocational training, because at root of this is the income inequality that is so tied in with the differential health statistics we have for black, brown, and other peoples of color. And so I'm trying to extend this to say we need to put over the Accountable Communities for Health and some of these other things that are cropping up, a whole person development network. And I don't have that fully formed yet, but that's just another example of something that I think uh, is going to be emerging. In the aftermath of the killing of George Floyd, and in the context of the coronavirus, the disparities in healthcare that you're alluding to have come very much to the fore. Those parts that are under the control of the physician and the healthcare system, how do you see us eliminating those disparities going forward? Mortality rates four times higher, as you pointed out, for women of uh, African-American origin, or the fact that uh, we're seeing uh, four times the number of deaths in the coronavirus itself in black members from the community. What are your thoughts about how the healthcare system can address these disparities? I think the healthcare system can address those disparities to some extent directly, but largely indirectly through the partnerships that I mentioned earlier. So the medical community, the health systems uh, involved, uh, I, I think they have to take up responsibility, not so much just for making changes when they encounter uh, patients when it comes to their doorstep or the emergency room, but being a part of the larger community that's trying to work on the underlying root causes, as you point out, the, the racism that is involved, that has been involved for centuries in our country and how that's manifested. So I think I don't absolve the healthcare system of uh, playing a role, uh, but it's going to have to be in joining up with these partnerships with others who can perhaps at times play the more direct role. Uh, but when it does land in the healthcare system's doorstep, so to speak, uh, we have to address it. And we have to address it uh, again by uh, incorporating uh, more culturally sensitive medicine uh, being much more aware of differences in culture and how people and languages using language interpreters. There's a wonderful uh, book. It's now fairly old called The Spirit Catches Me and We All Fall Down uh, by Anne Fadiman. It was written a number of years ago. It describes the cultural vast differences in California. I think it was in the uh, uh, 
of Merced area of California or Modesto area of California between the Hmong culture that came in and the medical community at Modesto Medical Center. Well-meaning doctors and nurses just couldn't get the Hmong people and this girl who had epilepsy uh, to make a meeting of the minds and get enough overlap in the sense of a Venn diagram to deal with the situation. I think it's improved and changed over time. And so there's still uh, that in, in, in healthcare where we're not enough patient-centered. If you think of health reform, I, I think we've got to go in more depth on the question, not is it what our healthcare system and providers need post-COVID, what do patients in the community need? That should be primary. And then what does the healthcare system and providers need in order to serve that primary need? And so it's not just a matter of recapturing revenue from, you know, let's bring the elective surgeries back and so forth and so on. But it's really, let's, let's listen to this wake up call of George Floyd and let's listen to the community and find out what they really need and then try to meet that response. And then can we line up the payment systems and others to reinforce that? It will all, yeah, the only thing I would add, Robbie, is of course, in terms of medicine and the other health professions, it's gonna help a lot to the extent we can have a more diverse healthcare workforce and uh, more African-American, Latino, Latinx physicians, American Native Indian, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, I think that's beginning to occur, but the numbers, as you know, percentage-wise are still very low. We don't look like America. We don't look like America's citizens when it comes to our professional workforce. Steve, what's your perspective on the impact that the Affordable Care Act has had, both the positive and the negative, and how would you amend it to improve it? Well, the Affordable Care Act clearly was a compromise gerrymandered, but it got done. And so at least for a while, it increased coverage and that's good. Absolutely, we need universal coverage for all, period. Uh, I'm certainly not convinced it needs to be single payer. That's one approach to it. There could be the public option that Biden uh, seems to favor at the moment as, as one option. But I think you could have still a role for private insurance companies, uh, still employer-based care uh, or covered care as well. I think it's too big a leap politically uh, to make those changes uh, overnight. Uh, but there could be a glide path towards that if some of the intermediate changes uh, don't work. So let me describe a few thoughts on some of the intermediate changes that are needed. So universal coverage with a benefit package that is in the Affordable Care Act. Um, uh, covering, um, uh, ex expanding, if you will, and restoring, you know, certainly cover the pre-existing conditions, but restoring and expanding on the subsidies that will be needed for certain populations. Uh, expansion of Medicaid uh, as well, and making that equivalent to the uh, ACA provisions are, are needed through waivers uh, or whatever means, uh, you know, might make that possible. Uh, then I think uh, what we need is, uh, for example, if you're still going to have private insurers as a part of this, uh, think of this as Medicare Advantage, 
not Medicare for all, Medicare Advantage for all. And the key difference, as you know, is the capitated payment. Medicare Advantage is per member per month, creating that upfront revenue stream, predictability, a cash flow for providers, a recovery from COVID, okay? So Medicare Advantage kind of thing, uh, development for all, that would be great to have as Biden's public option, or at least one part of it, rather than just Medicare for all, it's still fee for service or fee per GRG, et cetera, uh, uh, as it were. So I think moving in that direction would be an intermediate step. And to make it concrete, therefore, uh, you would have all payer risk adjusted per member per month, uh, creating budgets and networks between the insurers. Here in California, we have four big ones besides Kaiser. We have Anthem and Blue Shield and Health Net Centene, and we do have some others, uh, but they would go into negotiation. You can argue how, what that number will be, but it's gonna be per member per month to create that incentive now to keep people well. And that's the way it would be on the exchange, covered California here, where they do already have cost and quality metrics in order for insurers to be on the exchange. And so then people, if they're unemployed or whatever, could choose uh, one of those and they would be held accountable on the quality metrics as well as in terms of having the incentive uh, to keep the cost down, but they can't cheat on quality because they also have the quality metrics uh, that they have to meet before there's any shared savings or they experience savings themselves. So the glide path could be state by state experimentation with this kind of uh, per member per month capitation. I point out Vermont, is already beginning to get there. Maryland has already done it uh, for on the hospital side at least, and I hear they're extending it to physician and ambulatory care. Pennsylvania has done it for their rural hospitals. Uh, California, we've got the data through Integrated Healthcare Association, where those that are in an HMO, ACO kind of model per member per month cap uh, have significantly higher quality of care on are uh, the usual measures. You can argue they need to be better and they're lower costs significantly so than the fee-for-service uh, kind of provision. So this is what I describe as, as some other ways you can get universal coverage, but different ways of paying for that, reimbursing it and organizing it without necessarily overnight going to the government being the single payer. The coronavirus has created havoc across the United States from a medical, economic, and societal perspective. What did we get right? What should we have done differently? What can we learn from that experience going forward? I think we can learn from those who have handled this better than those who have handled it not quite as well. As it turns out, some work that I and others, mostly others have been doing, uh, have learned that those hospitals and health systems that uh, had some kind of standardized management system, uh, call it what you want, the lean management system or the shingle principles in which they had uh, several years experience in using tiered huddles where they would meet every day and go over things. What are we anticipating today? They had years of experience of using quality improvement techniques, plan, do, study, 
act cycles very quickly to be able to figure out what worked, who had visual management, data boards feeding it back on a daily basis, uh, who had leadership that would go to the front lines and say, what can I do to remove your problem today, right? Et cetera, et cetera. They did better than those that did not. And there's a couple articles coming out about that. And we've uh, interviewed some people uh, as well. There's examples, you're, you're at Stanford now and very early on, maybe you know this story down at Stanford. Uh, they had off and on experience with lean management, but they had quite a bit of it even in primary care. And within about uh, two or three days, they figured out how to use a combination of a nurse instead of a primary care doctor and have drive-through for the testing to speed that up. And they reduced turnaround time and throughput, I think by fourfold within about four days or so. Uh, that's just one example. Cleveland Clinic, the Cleveland Clinic and their health system has done wonderful work in dealing with COVID-19 as a result of their experience uh, with, if you will, the lean management system or standardized management. So they had those protocols in place. They knew each other. Not everything worked, but they quickly figured out what worked if they needed to do something with the ventilators. How do you get two for one on a ventilator? safely, if they didn't have enough PPE, where they could get the PPE, etc., and how they could protect their people, their own staff as well. Uh, Cleveland Clinic has long had something they call, forget what they call it, but where the caregivers, doctors, nurses, and others can say, I'm stressed out, and there's a support team that comes to them and says, well, what do you need? Or maybe you need to take an hour or two off, or maybe you need to take a couple days off. We need to get into the you know backup pool. So those are the kinds of learnings, I think, going forward. Clearly, telehealth, absolutely. But we need to look beyond just the obvious of going forward to creating a future in which 10 years ago, no one knew much about telehealth. Now it's here. What is it going to be 10 years from now, five years from now, when we face the next pandemic? What tools might we have? I think they're going to come mostly uh, from artificial intelligence. Uh, AI is already being used, but I don't think we really can imagine even uh, some of the uses of that uh, going forward. So I think these are some of the learnings from, from COVID-19 of why some were able to do better than others. Uh, but uh, of course, it's within the larger context uh, of our uh, challenges as, as a country facing this pandemic. What are your thoughts on how to address the rapidly rising cost of drugs? Uh, well, you know, uh, certainly negotiation uh, by the payers uh, with, the, uh, with the drug companies would help if Medicare were allowed to do that. Uh, that's on kind of, you know, the, uh, the macro uh, side of it. On the micro side, uh, Kaiser Permanente has done it for years where you have a regular look at the new drugs coming down the pike and weigh the evidence of generic versus, uh, versus brand, brand name drugs. And you, uh, you, you know, you really, uh, as long as the generic can, can do the job, you have incentives to use that. If you had the right payment model, right incentives, 
more providers and provider organizations will look more carefully. And then it would go down the food chain or the supply chain, as it were, the big purchases, since most hospitals now are a part of systems, for example, and increasingly physician practices in their negotiations with the insurers and what are you going to cover and with the manufacturers, et cetera, et cetera. We need to reduce or keep our prescription costs at now or only increase of 1%, in turn putting pressure and competition on the pharmaceutical companies, the Pfizer's of the world, et cetera, to compete because now their customers, right, are saying, we no longer are gonna pay you this same price for these, these drugs, right? So we gotta align, it's a domino effect, we gotta align the entire supply chain, the entire food chain to begin to use drugs more effectively. And I think, you know, God, the lessons from the opioid epidemic, you know, really make that uh, as a startling example. Steve, hospitals are struggling in almost all but the most affluent areas of our country. What direction do you believe they need to go? Are they broken? Is the system broken? What would you do if you were advising the next president about the hospitals in the United States? I think uh, the hospitals in the United States, uh, again, there, there's high degree of variability. Those that are parts of systems, of which about 65, 70% of hospitals now are parts of systems are gonna recover more quickly. The systems can spread some of the uh, pain, so to speak. They also have more resources to shore up uh, some of the ones within their system that have been more impacted by COVID-19 than, uh, than others. So I think as we see the uh, bounce back here, you're gonna see it more among the systems and even within the systems, there'll be a, uh, quite a bit of degree of variance between some of the smaller ones and some of the larger, more experienced ones, the inner mountains of the world and Geisinger's and Mayo Clinics and, and so on. Uh, I have a particular concern, Robbie, for other rural hospitals um, that I think are gonna be very difficult in terms of the impact of COVID-19 and what it has meant for them. So some of them will uh, go under. Uh, I don't have any precise estimate. Uh, I think it's an opportunity uh, for direct infusion of dollars uh, where, they, where you still need some rural hospital beds and also maybe to create incentives for the nearest urban or regional hospital system to in effect uh, adopt, I don't know if that's the right word, but to bring that rural hospital under its umbrella in terms of its resources, in terms of uh, what they need, in terms of electronic health records and so on, much as Virginia Mason and others have done around the country, Mason's in Seattle, but for decades they've had a rural outreach to rural hospitals across the Cascade Mountains. There's other examples of that as well. Mayo Clinic's done some of that in rural Minnesota and rural Wisconsin. So I think they need needs to be more incentives for that. The other thing I would say about rurals that it goes beyond hospitals is we need to figure out how to get broadband out there. You talk about patients in the community and patient centeredness. A lot of rural America doesn't have the broadband to have access uh, to telehealth and, and so on. So that's a related concern uh, as well. I live in Iowa. I grew up very, very rural. Um, and I, my parents still can't get super high speed internet where they're at either. And I know a lot of places don't even have access to the kinds of speeds they can get. I mean, it was very recently that they were able to get like even usable speeds by modern standards. Um, that being said, how can we make 
rural communities feel like they're not forgotten about. Um, I'm sure you're, you heard about that big storm in Iowa in the Midwest a couple weeks ago. It went through and it was, you know, probably the biggest natural disaster we've seen in my lifetime. And it barely made the news yet, you know, entire, you know, farmers and entire cities, entire crops are gone. People were without power for weeks. I think a lot of people in these areas just feel frustrated and forgotten about. Like from a health policy perspective, how, how, how would you recommend we make people in rural communities feel like they're A, not forgotten about, and B, ensure that they're getting the same level of care um, as their, you know, more urban counterparts? And essentially, how do we address the social determinant or the social determinants of health in these more rural communities as they have their own unique sets of problems? Yeah, it's a great uh, set of questions, Jeremy. And, and I've been part of a, a group, maybe you're familiar with it. If, if not, I recommend it. It's called Healthcare in the Rural West. And it's a group led by uh, Phil Polakoff and, and others, uh, past presidents of the Rural Health Association, I believe. And it, it's exactly trying to address and get national attention on what you've just raised. It remains to be seen how successful they're going to be. Uh, first point, I wonder if the COVID-19 pandemic that's been so disruptive, so much, the food supply chain and so on, uh, will finally amplify at least a little bit or raise the visibility of how important rural America is to the country at large, to the rest of us live in urban areas or you know, everything that happens every day, the food, the food we get on our plate and so forth and so on, the restaurants we eat out at. Uh, whether or not that's going to occur, I don't know. There's the possibility that could be raised uh, to greater attention. So that's the first point I, I would make. And then also, if you Google on healthcare in the rural West, they've come out with a policy statement in which they have, I believe, about nine or 10 recommendations uh, along those lines. Second thing I would say, besides extending the, the broadband that we covered already, uh, is uh, a different care delivery model for people uh, in rural Iowa and so forth. I have a colleague here who founded a company uh, called Caravan, and you may know of them. They're an aggregator of rural ACOs. In other words, as we all know, if you're a physician practice or a small rural hospital, you don't have enough enrollees to take on risk-based capitation or participate in CMS payment. Uh, but if you aggregate up and uh, you can do that. And so she's aggregated up to about 100,000 or more enrollees working with rural hospitals and practices throughout the country. And the magic sauce is she embeds a population health nurse into the rural physician practice. And that nurse does several things. One uh, knows the codes and helps that rural provider uh, code visits correctly and so forth, so they get reimbursed more than they have been. But secondly, a uh, big emphasis on prevention and outreach in the rural community. Usually this is a resident of the rural community, has a lot of respect and credibility, et cetera, uh, to get the patients in early uh, and so forth and uh, get taken care of so they don't have to be sent off to the urban medical center and may not even need to be admitted to the rural hospital. Third, is uh, on the possible referral to the urban center. She's able to work with, most of them are women, 
with the primary care doctor on, gee, this could be taken care of here right in our rural hospital community. It's jobs for them, a major employer. And so we've done some work. We have a grant from the Commonwealth Fund and our early analysis suggests that hospitals in rural America that are part of an ACO, uh, the financial viability of those hospitals has not been hampered so far. You know, the ACO thing is keep them out of hospitals. So you might've thought, well, that's gonna hurt the rural hospital even more. Not so, not so far, because we think what they're discovering is maybe more illness uh, that in fact can be treated in that rural hospital. Uh, and that's why at least at this point in time, the financial viability of the rural hospital uh, isn't hurting so much. Uh, so that's uh, another response in terms of redesigning how care is delivered uh, in that area. And the fourth thing I would say is the Virginia Mason model uh, of trying to expand that where there is a connection between the rural community and the more urban community. I don't know, in Iowa be between rural Iowa and you know, the health systems in Des Moines, for, for example, and in Illinois downstate versus you know the Chicago area or Springfield, for example. And you could play that out in a lot of other rural states uh, as well. Uh, so, uh, I think rural, you know, it's only 20% of our population, I guess, uh, but it's a lot, I think, a larger influence on our economy. Let me push a little harder. Some public health critics have said that the systems have done well because they've consolidated markets, gained market control, and raised prices rather than implementing any type of centers of excellence or true centers of excellence, consolidation of services or otherwise operational efficiency. How do you see the hospital industry across our nation? Yeah, there's absolutely, you're, you're right. The evidence that they raise prices is there. My colleagues have produced uh, some of it. So Elliot Fisher and I were part of a center of excellence with colleagues at, at Dartmouth in the last five years funded by the Agency for Health Research and Quality. We recently came out with a paper in Health Affairs this past month, in which we tried to address uh, the issue of, well, yeah, there's evidence that hospital systems, and particularly after they consolidate further raise prices, is there any offsetting evidence of improvements in quality, as they will claim often? So we did a big national survey of um, over 2,000 physician practices, many of whom belong to these systems, Eight, about 800 hospitals belonging to these systems, and then several hundred systems themselves. And the long story short, in looking at these process measures of quality, are they any more likely, for example, to have care management programs, sophisticated ones, uh, electronic decision support, screen clinical, screen social screening for the social determinants that you mentioned earlier, uh, participate in value-based pro uh, payment programs, and three or four other things like this. Long story short, there's we could find very little evidence of any offsetting quality advantages, that is that they were engaging in these behaviors. And we compared complex systems uh, and that's a system in which there are owner subsidiaries like the Ascension Health System, for just using them as an example. Simple systems in which there's no subsidiaries at all. I think Intermount would be an example, Sutter would be an example. Uh, and then we had medical groups, uh, honest to God medical groups, and then we had independent practices. And we made comparisons across all of these 
on these uh, various dimensions. So there's not a lot of evidence out there uh, at this point in time that documents offsetting quality advantages. It may be there, uh, but it's not you know, really uh, visible. Like you, I'm a big proponent of Medicare Advantage. The truth is that Medicare Advantage still pays about 90 cents on the dollar compared to commercial that's paying 120 or 130 cents on the dollar, depending upon the study that you read. What's your perspective on this issue and what changes would you make going forward if this became central to our nation's healthcare policy strategy? Yeah, if it becomes central Medicare Advantage or that kind of payment, I think it puts a positive pressure on the healthcare delivery system to deliver more value-based care and eliminate that 25, 30% of waste. So now you have to operate 90 cents on the dollar. You've been operating in cost shifting to the commercials to 120. Medicaid, as we know, pays even worse, of course. Uh, and Medicare doesn't pay as much, I guess, as Medicare Advantage. Uh, so I think uh, appropriately, we need to begin to realign, redistribute how much we spend in this country on uh, mostly after the fact, fix me up care uh, versus the 3% on public health and prevention and the social determinants of care. Uh, so uh, I, I would say, you know, 90 cents on the dollar, we should be able to deliver really good care, 90 cents on the dollar. And that's why I go to the risk-based all payer, negotiate upfront the per member per month that creates your budget. And now you have to deliver within that. And you have quality things, you know, to meet as well. So you can't stint on care. Uh, so I wouldn't personally worry a lot about 90 cents on the dollar uh, versus, you know, you can get more now with commercial carriers, of course. Uh, assuming, of course, we have the standardized benefit package and all of that. And assuming, of course, and it's imperfect, uh, that we can, you know, risk adjust to the extent we can. And you have enough people in the pool uh, so that you don't have that problem. Another thought related to that, you haven't asked it, but uh, what about the idea of a tax uh, on the wealthy in this country? Name a figure, 5 million annual income or more. And you use that tax for a nationwide reinsurance fund uh, that would compensate for unusual things occurring for these at-risk providers and insurance companies or, or whomever, or you know, some local outbreak of an epidemic. Uh, you know, who knows where that would be, uh, you know, compensated or reimbursed for these very unusual events, but yet they can wipe you out. So that could create a countrywide healthcare reinsurance fund. I'm glad you mentioned the economic impact of COVID-19 and not only in, in the rural areas, it's had an effect, but it's had, you know, quite a bit of effect on different, you know, everybody, not just farmers in rural areas, but people in cities, small cities, big cities, everything. As a public health expert, you know, what are your thoughts on the lockdowns and, and economic restrictions? Uh, have they done too much damage to the economy um, with regards to, you know, like I said, the, the shutdowns and restrictions? And have they had so much of an effect on the social determinants of health, like, you know, drugs, drinking, suicides increasing? I even think a lot of the civil unrest we're seeing is, I mean, probably exacerbated by, you know, a lot of people being out of work and things like that. 
I mean, kind of what are your thoughts on that? I agree with that, and I think uh, we won't see the full impact of the COVID-19 and our response to it. Probably uh, it'll play out over several years. This coming year in terms of the mental health that you mentioned, uh, physical health uh, issues as well, potential increase, unfortunately, in suicides, et cetera, uh, increase in homelessness among some populations and people um, also. Uh, so I, I think we're, we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg of the impact of COVID-19. In terms of uh, the uh, response, uh, I uh, err on the side of, uh, of uh, caution, uh, maybe public health background. Uh, I think uh, Tony Fauci uh, has got it mostly right. Uh, clearly there are trade-offs, there's no question about that. Uh, I think we've learned to become more nuanced and sophisticated in some states, not all, in terms of how you open up and what criteria you use to open up. And it's kind of like an accordion, you know, right, in, in, in a way. Uh, and to the extent you can really, this is our problem in America, uh, discipline ourselves uh, with the distancing, the face masks, avoiding the large crowds, et cetera, et cetera, that's been so highly variable and pretty much directly traced to uh, outbreaks uh, where that hasn't occurred, the Sturgis motorcycle event, for example, of a week or two ago. Uh, one way to think about it, I, I kind of think about it in terms of, you know, Girl Scouts, Boy Scouts, you go into the forest on a camp out, a trip, you get lost and you're trying to come out of it. And that's what we're doing now. At times we see clearings and then we go for it, we open up and then we find out, well, gee, we're back in the forest. That was just a temporary kind of clearing. And you know, the point is there's a rescue team out there and that rescue team are the vaccine developers. And until the rescue team gets to us, we are still gonna be wandering in the forest. And we may come to clearings now and then but we're still gonna have some members of our troop getting sick, some unfortunately dying, uh, maybe a few escape here or there, but until the rescue team comes to us, we are, and, and even then, you know, there's gonna be hiccups as we know the distribution system and how much protection is it going to be, et cetera, et cetera. Until that rescue team gets to us, we are not going to be in a position where we can say we've kind of uh, controlled this virus, uh, we've got the vaccine, and we can more fully open up our economy and get back to some kind of new normal, not, not the old normal. Thanks, Steve, for being on the show today and for your thoughts on the public policy and public health aspects of COVID-19. Robbie, what are your thoughts on what Steve said? Jeremy, Steve covered a huge range of topics, as I knew he would, given his breadth of experience, both as dean at the UC Berkeley Public Health School and professor at the Haas School of Business. His answers on rural hospitals and your comments about growing up in rural Iowa were insightful, particularly the need for internet access. The massive success of telemedicine during COVID-19 provides a clear path to bringing world-class medical care to rural areas, many of which are facing a shortage of specialty expertise. Doing so would facilitate a different model for hospital care. Rather than small hospitals in hundreds of communities, 
Patients could be treated in 24 by 7 high-intensity ERs in those locations, and one stabilized, taken using a sophisticated transportation system to larger hospitals with adequate volume to provide superior inpatient care. All the medical treatment could be coordinated using telemedicine so that the entire process was rapid and smooth. The combination of higher volume and added specialists would provide the best medical care, even for people in less populated areas. This would be analogous to the military that abandoned the MASH-type units of the past and achieved dramatically lower mortality when they stabilized and transported patients to larger, well-staffed, centrally located hospitals. In addition, rather than thinking of doctors in rural areas as taking the full risk of capitation, as Steve mentioned, for the totality of medical care provided, why not include the specialists supporting the local doctors and the now 24 by 7 ERs to which patients would be brought into a common accountable care organization? That best aligns the incentives of all. As such, you could have three or four rural facilities working with one high-volume hospital and all the doctors in primary care, specialty care, at each of the locations working together to achieve the best clinical outcomes in the most efficient ways. You could think of them as a virtually integrated single system of healthcare delivery. Finally, I concur with Steve that our approach to COVID-19 has been a series of starts and stops. We need a single national strategy, and we don't have one. Jeremy, Steve was the perfect final guest to this, our fourth season. As the former dean of the public health school, he understands the importance of prevention and attention to the social determinants of health. Our nation loves the newest things that glitter, and it pays attention to those aspects of healthcare that are the newest and most expensive, but overlooks what's relatively inexpensive and less glamorous. The biggest ideas aren't always the moonshots. They often are simply consistently doing what we know will work. Hopefully our country will learn from our mistakes and be better prepared the next time. And there will be a next time a pandemic strikes. And if we do, we will improve the total health of Americans through the process. And we will have care that focuses on prevention, that focuses on the social determinants of health, that focus on ways to maximize the health of all of the people of our nation. Please subscribe to Fixing Healthcare on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast software. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. Visit our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com and follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at fixinghcpodcast. We hope you enjoy this podcast and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. If you want more information on these topics, 
You can visit my website, robertperlmd.com. Together, we can make American healthcare, once again, the best in the world. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Have a great day.